We're in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse number 5. And, uh, um, you know, Luke's gospel opens with, well, first he talks to the, the uh, recipient, a guy named Theophilus. Um, but then in verse number 5, he opens up with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth are godly descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. And Luke 1 verse 6 tells us two important truths about what I'm going to call this Levite power couple. Two important truths. Number one, they were saved. And number two, they were endeavoring to live sanctified. Now, if you don't get anything else that we cover this morning, understand the importance, number one, first and foremost, of being saved. Number two, of once you are saved, trying to live sanctified. Now, here's where some people get mixed up. Some people try to put the cart before the horse, and they try to live sanctified before they're saved. I got news for you, friend. Until you're saved, you can't be sanctified. You can be religious. You can be moral. You can be an upstanding member of the community. But to be saved, you've got to understand that you're a sinner, that your sin offends our holy God, that God has to deal with sin because he's righteous. But Jesus Christ, his son, came to this earth, took our sins upon himself, and died in our place that God's righteousness might be satisfied. And then he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then once that happens, then you can start endeavoring to live for him. You see, first of all, I'm going to live in him. But then once I live in him, I'm going to try to live for him. Okay, and, and, and by the way, Christian, if there's nothing in you that desires to live for him, there's something seriously, seriously wrong. Right. I, I'm not saying that, that we're perfect. We all have things to work on. I'm not saying that we don't have moments in which we're not the Christians we ought to be. But if you can sit there and tell me I have no desire to live for God, then I have to seriously question whether or not you met him to begin with. Because though I've got a lot of problems and I've got a lot of warts and everything else in my life, there is something in me, it's called my spirit, that's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. There's something in me that desperately wants to be more like Jesus, that desperately wants to live for him and to be like him. Look at verse number 6. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It says, and they were both righteous before God. They were saved. And then it says they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. That means they were endeavoring to be sanctified. Can we say that? If you don't get anything else, if you have to put a pen right there and meditate on that, do so. Am I saved and am I endeavoring to be sanctified? In that order. Now, when we meet Zacharias and Elizabeth, we find them in a later stage of life. They have no, no son. They don't have any children at all. Now, the common thinking of that day was that if you didn't have any kids, particularly sons, then that must be a punishment for some sin that's in your life. That's how the Jews of that day thought. Oh, well, you don't have any children, then, then you're, you're being punished for something. Something's wrong in your life because who God loves, he blesses with kids. Now, we understand that's not how God works, but that's how they thought. The common thinking of that day, that they were enduring God's punishment for some concealed sin. Elizabeth no doubt withered under the judgmental glances and feigned compassions of the ladies within her circle. As badly as they wanted a child, all hope was lost. In verse number 7, it said of them that they were stricken 
in years. Usually, culturally, if somebody in that day was said to be stricken in years, they were in their 60s or 70s. If it says, and it goes on to say that they were well stricken in years, then they're, they're knocking on the door of 80 or beyond. Elizabeth was barren, a heartbreaking stigma to carry in that day, but she'd gotten used to it and really wasn't thinking about that when Zacharias's opportunity to burn incense in the temple arrived. You see, the priests were set up in different groups, a, a t- grouping of 24. David set that up, and they would come in, and they would do their part, and then they would go home. And it was Zacharias's turn to burn incense, and this was a big big deal. The family would gather outside the temple and Elizabeth's out there and people are out there and Zacharias, it's finally his turn and he heads in with his censer and he heads in with the incense and man, what a, what a wonderful moment for him. She waited with the others as her husband entered the holy place, not able to conceive of what he was about to encounter. Now, as we look through this passage, we could spend some time covering a lot of different things. First of all, this this would be the first time that God had spoken to his people in 400 years. For 400 years, no visions, no new scripture, no prophecies, nothing. 400 years. You talk about the silent treatment, man. 400 years. We could talk about that. Uh, We could talk about... um, Uh, We could say much about the messianic tones of this event, that Gabriel standing on the right side of the altar has significance, and it does. We could study Zacharias' transition from being startled to terrified in the two Greek words that we translate fear. He was startled first, and then he was terrified. Any of us would have been. We could delve into the role of John the Baptist as forerunner to his cousin, Jesus. If Brother Earl were here, he's gone to take his niece to the airport. But if he were here, he would draw some interesting correlations between the timing of Jesus and John's announcements and their dedication and Daniel's 70 weeks. And yeah, there is something there. Ask him. There's a lot to talk about here. But let me tell you where my attention is drawn. I want you to look at verse 13. What I'm most drawn to is this simple statement made by the angel. Thy prayer is heard. Here's Gabriel standing at the right side of this altar, looking at a faithful, albeit aged man, a Zacharias. Thy prayer is heard. A prayer that's been bathed in tears, a prayer of many volumes, sometimes whispered, sometimes screamed from the top of a housetop, a prayer that's been released and picked back up again, perhaps over and over, a prayer perhaps at this point almost forgotten. Thy prayer is heard. What prayer have you been harboring? Harboring. Maybe you've been praying the same prayer for years. If they're truly about to turn 80, and they've been praying for a child, let's say, since they were 30, that's half a century. 
50 years of praying for the same thing. Now, they're made of the same stuff we are. They're subject to like passions as we are. So let's use our sanctified imagination to put some, some flesh to them. Have you ever had a prayer that you prayed so long you gave up for a while? Have you ever had a prayer that you thought, well, maybe I'm not praying for the right thing, or maybe I need to rethink this, or why isn't God hearing this prayer? Why isn't he giving me an answer? What, what, what prayer is it? Maybe it's a family-related prayer. Maybe it's a loved one that needs to be saved. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a child that's kind of gone on their own way. Maybe it's uh, you know, a prayer for revival, a prayer for a family life center. What, what, what prayer have you been offering up? 50 years, 50 years. And you got to think by the time they hit 60, maybe they do stop praying because nobody has babies that late. Although maybe there was something in them that remembered they had a forefather named Abraham. Sarah was 90. Is that possible? But with God... Nothing shall be impossible. What's your prayer? Whatever it is, we learn a great deal. Now, now I'm not about to preach a message that tells you whatever it is to keep on asking God and he's going to give it to you because he may not. The thing about prayer is prayer more often than not doesn't change God's heart. It changes ours. And a lot of times I've been praying for something, and the whole point of me praying was not that I could move the hand of God, but that he could move my heart back to his will. And you learn how to pray in the will of God. So I'm not sitting here telling you, you know, preacher, I've been, I've been, you know, that girl I've had my eye on for years, I've been praying, and God's going to give her to me. I don't know if he will or he won't. Depends. Are you a scoundrel? Probably not. But I am telling you this, whatever it is, if you'll stay faithful with it, God will do something in your heart and in your life. And he'll make it worth it for you to have kept on praying. And we look at Zacharias and we look at Elizabeth and we consider some, some pretty important principles of an answered prayer. Principles of an answered prayer. So Father, would you help us now as we look to this passage? May I rightly divide your word of truth and may Jesus be lifted up. Lord, I've been thinking a lot lately about how I let some things in my life slip. Sometimes I'm not as vigilant. Sometimes I'm not as close to you. And sometimes I'm not as, um, I'm, I'm not as godly as I should be. For some reason, Lord, this weekend, just in all the time of traveling, I've had a lot of time to think about that and some areas I need to work on. And I confess that afresh and anew to you, Lord. I'm not all I should be, but I sure want to be like Jesus. And I ask God that you would just forgive me for all the ways that I fail you. And would you use me in spite of myself today? And would you speak to our hearts in the way that only you can? And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Some principles of an answered prayer. Number one, answered prayers transcend awful predicaments. Answered prayers transcend awful predicaments. This is a terrible burden for both of them. 
Could I put it this way? They are both, physically speaking, well beyond any reproductive hope. They are too old to have children. And with that comes all the cultural stigma. See, in a perfect world, you have a son to carry on your name. You have a son to carry on your ministry, to carry on your legacy. But, but even if you don't have a son, if you have daughters that can then begin homes with other people's sons, and that's, that's pretty good too. But if you have no kids at all, then you did something wrong. There's something going on with Zacharias. There's something going on with Elizabeth that did, that's displeased God, and God's not for it. And you know, oh, bless your heart. It's so good to say, you know there's something. You know, you know how it goes. What an awful predicament. And people that have struggled with that kind of thing, you know the pain. You know the heartache of something you so desperately want. Please, God. And then you compound it with some of the people that do get kids. Can we be honest for a minute? Have you ever seen a family and the parents are mistreating the kids and everything else? You're like, Lord, why in the world would you allow them to have them? But not me. We know a touch of this after Claire. Claire came right off the bat. But after, after Claire, we went through a long season of problems. We've got three children in heaven waiting on us through all of that. And then God said, okay, if that's what you really want. And then he gave us Asher. And now we're like, we're good, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> this was an awful predicament. And here they are, maybe 80 years old. But you know what we learn? Sometimes God lets things get their absolute worst. So there's no doubt who did what happened. See, if, if they'd have been in their 40s, well, that's a pretty, you know, well, that's, that's something. Good for y'all. But nobody's going to say, oh, the God of heaven must have done this. No. But 80? That's the only conclusion anybody can draw is this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. I mean, I appreciate large ministries. I'm thinking of one right now and, and every time you turn around, they're building something else. We just built our second children's building. What's a children's building? They get their own building? And they've just built their second I just want a family life center, and we'll put the kids in there. But can I be honest? You look at a big ministry like that, a multi-scores of millions of dollars going through. They build another building. If you're honest, you're kind of like, yay. But a church like ours puts a $2.5 million building over there. We all got to say the same thing. This was the Lord. Now, if you're in here and you're sitting on $2.5 million and you're not telling me, shame on you. But sometimes God, let me, give, let me give you a couple of people that learned that in a difficult time. Mary and Martha. Lazarus was sick. Could God have fixed it then? Sure. Lazarus died. Could Jesus have showed up and their mourning be short-lived? Sure. But instead, he let that boy lay in there for four days and begin to decompose. And when they opened that tomb, everybody around there smelled that Lazarus was dead. 
Why did God let it get so bad? Because nobody was going to argue that there was some kind of bait and switch and Lazarus never died. Everybody knew he was dead. And everybody knew that this man, Jesus Christ, came and called him back from the grave. And that man walked out of there alive. And maybe, just maybe, your predicament keeps getting more and more awful because God says, no, it's not stinky enough quite yet. But when it's stinky enough, then I'm going to step in and I'm going to do something that nobody saw coming. Hmm? We learned something about this. Answered prayers transcend awful predicaments. Got some good news for you. Also, answered prayers overcome abandoned pleas. Verse number 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Is it, there's, there's nothing grammatically to tell us, tell us that Zacharias had prayed that prayer that day. It's very general. Is it not out of the question that this prayer has long since been abandoned? If you're 80 years old, are you really still asking God to give you a child? Probably not. But you know what we've done? We've given people this wrong idea that if you lapse in your fervency of praying for something, that God's in heaven saying, oh, you almost made it. If you had prayed another day, sorry, got to start over. You know, you know where we get that? We get that when we misapply Scripture. That's why it's so important to be here on Wednesday nights. We're about to start application. We misapply Scripture. Yeah, that was a commercial. We do this a lot with parables, don't we? You remember in Luke chapter 11, the friend comes through, knocks on the guy's door. Hey, I'm traveling through, and I, I, need, some, I need some shelter. I need some food. And, and the guy's in the bed with his kids. I know that. Claire's over it now, but Asher's not. There's just a given. We have a process in life. Crystal lays down with Asher. Asher falls asleep. And sometimes Crystal falls asleep. And I come get Crystal. Sometimes she follows, sometimes she doesn't. Crystal gets up. We do whatever we're going to do. We turn in for the night. About 3, 4 in the morning, boom, 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 boom. A third person enters the chat. <laughs> and there he is. So when this guy says, I'm in bed with my kids, I get it. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you come to my door in the middle of the night, first thing I'm going to do is grab my gun, honestly. Cell phone in one hand, gun in the other. I come down to the door. Who is it? That's, that's going to be at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm just going to let you know that right now. If you're in bad enough shape, you're not going to be offended by that. You come all the way up my driveway, you up to something anyway. But the Bible says that this guy finally answered the door and helped this guy because of his importunity. He just kept on and kept on and kept on. See there, if you'll just keep on and keep on and keep on, then God will answer your prayer. That's not what that's saying. 
Or what about the widow that goes to the judge? I need you to deal with my adversary. And the judge finally relents. It's not because she has a good case. He says, if I don't, I'm going to give you a little bit of Appalachian spin on this. If I don't, this woman's going to worry me to death. See there, if you'll just worry God to death, he'll finally relent and give you what you need. That's not what Jesus is saying. These are not comparisons, they're contrasts. Jesus is not saying this is how God deals with us. He's saying, no, God's exactly the opposite. He said, well, wait a minute, Andy. I've heard you say in, in Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11, ask, seek, and knock, that the tensing of that is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Yes, but none of that is because God's deciding whether or not he's going to answer us. That persistence in prayer is not for God. It's for us. Our prayer, I believe, was heard, assuming that there's no sin in your life that breaks all fellowship. I think that prayer was heard and even answered the first time you prayed it. Well, wait a minute. I haven't seen anything. Just because you haven't seen anything doesn't mean it wasn't answered. Can can I give you some scripture? Listen to this. Daniel chapter 9, verse number 20. Daniel says, and whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Now listen to this, verse 23. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth. And I am come to show thee. Listen, I'm talking to you now, Daniel, but God answered you when you first prayed. So so what, what do we take from that? We may not see the answer, but it's already there. Our prayers are immediately important to God, but not necessarily immediately actionable. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me give an example. If you come to me, and let's let's say that you have a concern about something, or dare we say a complaint. I'm either going to grab my cell phone or some piece of paper. Sometimes there's a little book that I carry with me, a little, a little leather notebook that I carry. And I'm going to jot something down. Or I'm going to put it in the notes section of my phone. I have indicated to you that this is important to me and that I'm going to have this at my disposal. Now, if I don't do that, that doesn't mean it's not important to me. It just means I don't have my little book. But if I have it and I write it down, okay, But does that mean that I am automatically going to do something about it right then? No. There may be all kinds of things that need to happen first. There may may be questions I need to ask. There may be people I need to talk to. There may be things that I need to wait out for your benefit. I'm saying it's not that I've not heard you. It's not even that I haven't answered. It's that it's not actionable yet. And maybe you're praying for something. God's already said yes, or maybe he's already said no, but He's already answered it, but the action hasn't happened yet. Andy, that sounds good, but I don't think there's any theology behind that. Well, 
Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 56, 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Every time you pray, God in heaven. All right? I hear you. I already know what I'm going to do about this. You might have to wait a little while, and you might have to keep asking. That's for you. That's good for you. But I already know what's going down. See? Well, I used to pray for this, but I haven't been praying for the Family Life Center. Then start again. But I'm telling you, God's not in heaven saying, well, you missed it. Sorry. No. Just pick it back up again. I dare say, Zacharias and Elizabeth hadn't asked God for a child in quite some time. When did God answer their prayer? First time they prayed it. Because answered prayers overcome abandoned pleas. Number three, understand this. When you get an answer to prayer, it's going to come with awesome plans. It's going to come with awesome plans. Look at verse number 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son in joy. That's not where it stops, is it? The first instruction they give them is, you're going to name him John. First instruction. Now, had they not named him John, what would have been the problem? They've started off in disobedience, just like that. If God gives you what you ask for, does he have the right to tell you what to name it? Yeah. Name him John. Why? Well, there's a lot of meaning in names, isn't it? Now, people don't look at that quite as much as they used to, but my parents did. My parents were very careful to name me something that they felt would reflect me. And so they named me John Andrew. My father's first name is John. My son's first name is John. He's John Edward. I'm John Andrew. My son's John Asher. John Andrew. John means the gracious gift of God. Andrew means strong and manly. Man, my parents nailed it, didn't they? (laughs) We're naming our son the strong and manly gift of God. Did John have meaning? Yeah. First of all, name him John because I said name him John. But second of all, I'm about to give you a gracious gift because this guy's going to go all over the countryside telling people that my son's on his way. So it wasn't, here's your son, enjoy. No, here's your son. Now these are my expectations for him. You know why some of us don't get our prayers answered? Because God knows that we're not prepared to fulfill any of our expectations that's going to come with it. Oh, Lord, please send me a spouse. I'm not going to send you a spouse until you're ready to be good to them. Oh, God, send us a child. Well, I'll send you a child maybe once you decide you're going to raise them up the way I want them raised up. Oh, give me that job. No, I'm not going to give you that job until you show that you're going to use money in a way that glorifies me. It could be that maybe your prayer isn't being answered because you're not ready to do what God wants you to do with it. That'll blow up later. But it's true. Verse 13. 
But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Well, okay. Hey, Elizabeth, that means you don't either while you're carrying him. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Side note, doesn't sound like a bunch of cells to me. Sounds like a person. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is he saying? Yes, God answered this prayer, but there would be expectations as to how this boy would be used. And don't, don't watch God answer a prayer and then think that's the end of the matter. God has expectations that will ultimately prove to be unthinkably wonderful plans for your good and his glory. Yes, Continue to ask God for that prayer. Continue to, oh God, would you give me this? Oh God, would you do that? But with that prayer, also breathe the commitment. And God, when you do, I'll use it however you want me to use it. God, I desperately, desperately want this family life center. And if you'll give it to us, it's yours. We'll do with it whatever you want. It's yours, just like this is yours, and that building is yours. God, it's yours to do whatever, but Lord, we need you to do it. But if I'm asking God for something that I'm just going to waste on my own lusts, I'll never get it. Could it be that Zacharias and Elizabeth, as awesome as they were, just weren't ready for John yet? Number four. You see, answered prayers transcend awful predicaments. Answered prayers overcome abandoned pleas. Answered prayers are paired with awesome plans. Answered prayers expect accompanying persuasion. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Verse 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife, well stricken in years. Now, we read this and we think of Mary. Mary in chapter 1, verses 26 through 35, she says, how should this be, seeing I know not a man? Well, why did Gabriel, and by extension God, punish or chasten Zacharias, but not Mary? Because they didn't ask the same question. What's the difference? Zacharias is saying, how can God do this? Mary's just asking how he will. Well, I believe he will. I'm just asking how he's going to do it. Zacharias is saying, this is impossible. God can't do this. Well, I'm glad I'm not like Zacharias. You are every time you're surprised when God answers your prayer. Let's be honest. How often do we pray with an underlying current of, yeah, but he's not going to do anything. Have I had my moments? That's going to stay a really nice archery range probably forever. Yeah. You know what that is? That's unbelief. And if you're asking God for something, he has the right to expect that you'd be persuaded that he's able and willing to do it. 
How often does answered prayer reveal an underlying unbelief all along? How many times has God answered your prayer and you were surprised? Number five. This one's my favorite. Answered prayer transcends awful predicaments. Answered prayer overcomes abandoned pleas. Answered prayers are paired with awesome plans. Answered prayers expect accompanying persuasion. And ultimately, answered prayers always identify the almighty provider. When you get your prayers answered, the ultimate, the ultimate end to that is that it draws you closer to Jesus. Nothing... Nothing outside of personal study of the Word of God does more to increase your faith and get you closer to God than to have your prayers get answered. So what does answered prayer do? It points right to Jesus, right to the one who's almighty and providing everything for us. How do I know? Look later in the chapter, verse 39. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. Now she's already carrying Jesus. And entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. <laughs> and it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Wait a minute. Mary hadn't said she's pregnant yet. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now hold on a second. Mary didn't say she's pregnant, and she sure didn't say she's pregnant with the Son of God. How does Elizabeth know this? Because her answered prayer told her so. What? Oh, yeah. John was the living embodiment of answered prayer. And his very first ministry was to get excited and say, that's him. Andy, that's not so. Oh, yes, it is. Read verse 43 again. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Who told her? John did. Now, if a child six months in utero can be a witness and say, that's him, then don't you think God's people who've had some prayers answered could be able to look at other people and go, that's him? Shame for us to be put to shame by an unborn infant. with all the answered prayers we've enjoyed. So what? 
nice little story about John the Baptist and Zacharias and Elizabeth. What do I do with that? And this is your opportunity to close your Bibles, zip up, button up, get out your mint, your gum. I give you that opportunity because you don't realize this down there. But up here, it's this wave of... Because the so what is what I want you to leave with. All right, Andy, that's all nice and good. What do I take from this? What do I do with this? What's my application? Well, first and foremost, what we started off with. Right now, am I saved? Am I sanctified? That's the biggest so what of this whole thing. Am I like Zacharias and Elizabeth? Am I saved and endeavoring to live a sanctified life? Then, once we've determined that, we're talking about answers to prayer. Andy, I've been praying about something for a long time. Okay, good. We all should be. What prayer are you seeking to get answered? Remember this. God often lets things get bad that he might show his power clearly. If you're in an awful predicament, that's when you most need to pray. Maybe you've given up on a prayer. Maybe you have, but God hasn't. Pick it up again. Don't let that plea be abandoned. Now, when he answers your prayers, understand he has, ac- has expectations. Go with it, because they're going to reveal awesome plans. But in the middle of this, watch for unbelief. He expects an accompanying persuasion. And then finally, ultimately, what's answered prayer going to do? It's going to get us closer to Jesus and more apt to tell others, that's him. These are the principles that we learn from one answered prayer. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, please.